Welcome to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast. Here we analyze politics, culture, technology, personal growth and development, and society at large through the lens of critical thinking and open-mindedness, not demagoguery and partisan hyperbole. I'm Dr. David Hopkins, Humanities Professor, your host and guide. So without further delay, let's get started. Welcome everyone today. Hello. And this is a conversation I'm actually incredibly excited. And I've, I've been looking forward to this one uh, for quite some time. I have Milagros Phillips with us today. She is a keynote speaker, an author, a certified coach, a TEDx presenter. And she's actually known as the race healer is one of the terms I saw out there for her. And, and you know, before we even get to, to Milagros talking, the second someone mentions race or racism anymore, there's almost like a natural tendency to throw up walls instantaneously. Agitation can just show up and, and people almost dig in their heels before they even hear a word. Once that once the word racism or race is mentioned. So I think it's really important that we talk about this and bringing on Milagros with such a unique experience and, and 20 plus years of experience in this field is, is really important. And because I think one of the things in bringing on Milagros is the ideological left and the right, they, they've reduced this topic almost to just simple sound bites that, that, that they use during election season. And, and we hear these terms like, racist, Nazi, fascist, they throw them or they're being thrown around so frequently without us really taking a step back and understanding the full context behind it. So I am so pleased you are here, Milagros. And um, so why don't you just start right now and just tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here with you, David. I'm really excited for us to have this conversation. Um, I actually was born and pretty much raised in the Dominican Republic. I was 10 years old when I came to the U.S. and I had just finished the seventh grade and um, I had to learn to speak English. Spanish is my first language. Right. And, um, you know, I, I mean, it was moving to a different world. I still remember my sister picked me up at JFK. When I got off the plane, back then it was Pan Am, Pan American Airlines. <laughs> Some yeah. people may actually remember that. Yeah, really. Uh, that airline. But um, but I remember we, we first of all, she met me with a fur coat. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the first thing that I remember was we got into a yellow taxi cab. Mm -hmm. And as we're driving, this white stuff starts falling on the car. <laughs> so I look at my sister and I said to her, what is that? She said, nieve, snow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd never seen snow because obviously in a tropical country, we do not get snow. Right. So, um, yeah. So, you know, but it's it's been an interesting journey. Um, early on in the Dominican Republic, I... Um, faced a lot of what we call colorism, because that's what there's a lot of in the Dominican Republic, being a dark-skinned Black woman. And uh, and then I came to the U.S., and um, it was out and out, not just colorism, but also racism, which is a different form of that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey. It's been a really interesting journey, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, uh, my wife from Venezuela, I could give some really good snow stories there, too. Uh, <laughs> first time she saw snow when I, I was born and raised in Iowa in the middle of the, the oh. Midwest. And so when she went up there, well, we won't even go there. I could go. I could talk about that too long. So, but, but anyway, so, you know, I, I saw your TEDx talk and, and you did a, a really interesting take on what you termed, and, and I believe you actually even coined this term, race literacy. And so could you kind of discuss and explain that as kind of a starting off point for us as as we get going here? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, race literacy for me is the knowledge and awareness of the history of race, how we are all acculturated into a racial caste system, the impact that that has on everything in the society and the way that it affects individuals in their actions, reactions, and interactions. So okay. becoming race literate is having an awareness of all of the above. Okay, excellent. And and so as we take this idea, the, the talking about race, you make a distinction, and, and I think we all need to, between a term you call anti-racism and healing racism. That's an interesting term there that that you use can so when we get into the concept of racism i want to i want to jump into this one um quick what what do you, what is that difference can you kind of explain those two terms for me sure anti-racism work um has been around for for quite a while and anti-racism work is really looking at the structural racism and how it impacts individuals in all areas of life whether they are purchasing a home, um, you know, getting a job, like all the various ways in which racism impacts particularly black and brown people and indigenous people. And so um, so that anti-racism looks at the impact of um, of structural and systemic racism on individuals. Healing racism is taking what is hurtful. Um, you, what 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 hurts in so many ways around race and racism and finding a way to to make it better mm-hmm. and here is what i mean by that healing racism is about looking at well let me let me back backtrack when we go to the doctor because something is wrong something's hurting something you know whatever it is right one of the first things they ask us to do is to write down our history. And the reason you need your history for healing is you need to understand what came before because what came before is what's affecting you now. And if you don't change what came before, you're gonna continue to get sick. Or even if you get better in one place, you'll get sick somewhere else because you still haven't dealt with with the underlying causes of the disease. Right. Okay, so healing racism is about looking at the underlying causes of racism not just the uh, institutional and structural, but really looking at the way that it affects human beings in mind, body, spirit, and emotions. And so to do healing work when it comes to racism, we need to, one, understand the history, two, understand trauma and, and be trauma-informed. And three, we need to be able to look at the way that it affects us in our body, mind, spirit, and emotions and how it affects our actions, reactions, and interactions. Okay. Because racism is institutional, 
systemic, which is what we deal with when it comes to anti-racism. We deal with the, with the top two layers. But racism is institutional, systemic, internalized, and in, it, which then becomes personal and interpersonal. And so by that, I mean, so, it's, it's, so and we look at all five of those and we look at the effects of all five of those on the mind, body, spirit, and emotions. So mm-hmm. by that, I mean, we look at institutional racism. What are the laws? When were they established? How was it established? How does it continue to affect us? Systemic, what are the systems that have been put in place to uphold the laws that were put in place? Okay. In, um, it, then it becomes um, internalized because what happens is we internalize our environment, whether we're aware of it or not. I mean, that's what babies do. And we continue to do that throughout our lives. And so what we're doing is we are internalizing the systems and the structures that we live under. So you can't help but internalize racism because what's institutional and systemic is already racist. And so, so we internalize that and then it becomes part of our personality. And now you're interacting with someone. So it's institutional, systemic, internalized. You've absorbed it, right? Personal, because now it's living inside of you and interpersonal, because now, because it's living inside of you, you're going to act, react and interact with other human beings out of what is internalized inside of you. I always tell people racism is not the fault of anyone living today, but it's still our collective responsibility to heal it. And so, you know, so giving people basic background information that can hold that that space of healing or making things better, allowing people to have a way of living that while we're still living in the um, institutional and systemic, people can begin to make their own lives better from the inside out. So that's what healing racism is. So that's the difference. One is from the outside in. So in, anti-racism is from the outside in. What are the laws? What are the systems? What are the structures that are affecting you? Racism is both from the outside in. What are the laws? What are the systems? What are the structures that are affecting you? And from the inside out, how is that affecting you in your mind, body, spirit, and emotions? And then what are some of the things that you can do to begin to create, to, to, to live out of a place of wholeness? Because no matter how, how much of a broken system we live out of, whether it's a broken family, a broken community, or a broken country, there is something inside of us, each and every one of us as a human being, that is untouched by any of that. And so healing is about reaching into that part of us. And the reason I explained this in in my seminar that I just did last week, the reason that people are resilient is because there's something living inside of them that's greater than the resilience that allows them to be resilient, if that makes sense. Right, right. And um, And so that's where we reach in to find our wholeness and begin to live out of compassion, love, understanding, and begin to create our own little world that is grounded in compassion, love, and understanding, and then reaching out to the greater world so that more and more people can become 
loving, compassionate understanding. But a lot of that is through the healing process, understanding the history, understanding the structures and all of those things. Right, right. I think, you know, those top two layers where, where you mentioned the systemic and the, uh, inst- the institutionalized, was that the term? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I from my studies on that, I mean, that that basically sounds a lot like the or the critical race theory. Is that where both, most of that theory is focusing on the power structures? Uh, you go back to Mercus or maybe the, the Hamburg group way back, you know, that started cri- the quote unquote critical theory that later evolved into critical race. Is is that what is when you're talking about the anti-racist? Is that really where that lies? This this critical no, theory? no, no. I I think um, un- unfortunately because most people listen to the news and then they parrot what they hear on the news. You know that critical race theory is now is now the buzzword. Okay. Yes. And every two to three weeks or months, there's a new buzzword. Okay. Uh, but that's part of the disease. But at any rate, so. So now it's critical race theory. Critical race theory was created in the 1970s by a, I don't know why I'm blanking out on her name right now, but but um, she is a law professor. She still teaches, teaches at Columbia University. She also teaches at a, at a university in California. Yeah, critical race theory. Yeah, I can't remember her name either. Yes, I'm blanking out. Head, I, I know who you're that. talking about. The yes. keeping me right now, but. Yeah, and so Davis. critical race theory. Angela Davis, is that it? Was it Angela? No, 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 no. No, no. that was, it. That was, that was another one. Okay. No, um, critical race theory uh, was begun to have law students, specifically law students, have a way of looking at institutionalized racism. So how the laws are steeped in racism and how they impact people of color. It is still a course that is taught, and there, there are about 230-something law schools in this country. Critical race theory is offered, offered, not demanded, but offered in about 200 of those schools. That is the only place that is actually, because you know this, this information is copyrighted, but critical race theory is a way of looking at the laws. It is not... Um, it's not a, you know, what people think about it is, you know, it's a theory that we now have to, that's not what it is. It is actually a way of looking at the laws so that, that young people studying the law can understand how racism is written into the law. Okay. And, and how that, how, how the ways that the laws are interpreted because of the way that it's written into the law, affect people of color. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I think, and, and I'll bring up a, a point that I think many people struggle with who are not of color when it comes to those top layers. So I think there's there are many whites who would say, I'm not racist. I voted for Obama. I voted for Vice President Kamala Harris. My goodness, I'm being told that my whole life I've been programmed to be a racist and I swear I'm not a racist. I've, I've, I'm married to someone of color. I've, I've got family of color. I've got, please don't tell me anymore that I'm systemically racist because I swear I'm not. Well, how do you, you know, like when you hear that, what, 
how do we how do we kind of bring the groups together because sometimes when you hear that it makes people who we want who you would want to not be racist to actually make them repulse them from considering alternative viewpoints like you're talking about so i think the healing has to come in because i mean i think whites and blacks or hispanics or asians or jews or whoever it might be if we don't get past the oh you're racist if you don't think this if you don't believe me on that well then you must be this you know we got to get past that so yeah you know how how do we how do we move to that i think you use the term like he how do we heal racism you know that's i think that's really the million dollar question mm-hmm. at the end of the day i mean if we can yeah. get there i mean we we've solved so much so you know yeah well the first thing people need to do is get my new book because it actually there gives you go. 13 layers that people go through who are honestly looking to heal from racism ah, and yeah. and i cover some of the the uh, foundations of racism which most people don't know i mean you know the racism we're experiencing today was institutionalized in the 1400s and we're still living under those same laws that institutionalized racism in the 1400s and so you know so having an awareness of um, the law and how the law affects us. We are a a nation of laws, right? Right. It's necessarily equate to justice, but we are a nation of laws. So, um, you know, so looking at things like um, the doctrine of discovery, which actually was was, um, one of the first written documents that, um, that created the racial system we live under today. And then understanding castas, which is the caste system that the Spanish and the Spaniards created. A lot of people don't realize that the U.S. was under Spanish rule before it went to being English ruled uh, through the the English colonies. And so, you know, so there's a lot of missing history for people. And so the first thing that people need to do is to um, is to learn their history. And one of the first the thing that I spent the most I have a, a, a two-day program that I've been facilitating now for 20 years. It's called Race Demystified. Mm-hmm. And Race Demystified gives people all this background information that we do not learn in school. It gives them um, the, the 13 layers of the healing process. It walks them through how we heal and what that's like. Right. Because, it, because there's, a level, there's even a level of grief that we tackle in there, regardless of the color of people's skin. Because here's the thing, David, racism is a problem for people of color. It is not the problem of people of color. We cannot solve racism. Racism is a white problem. And it was institutionalized that way. It's not good or bad, right or wrong. It is what it is. And if we don't face the reality, we can't solve it. We can't solve an illusion. We can't heal on illusion. We can't heal on a lie. Okay, it is what it is. So, for instance, the doctrine of discovery is something that still continues to affect indigenous people around the world. And when I say around the world, I'm talking about all the places that have been colonized. That includes the United States, Canada, India, Asian countries, um, you know, Caribbean countries, South America, Central America, all of these places that were once colonized by Europeans are under, and all these various African countries are under the doctrine of discovery, which is is something that was established in the 1450s, 
for for the uh, Portuguese crown. Then it was revised again and again. And the last time it was revised was 1493 when Columbus went back from Quisqueya, the first and original name of La Española, which is now the Dominican Republic. When he went back to Spain with gold, silver, um, you know, food and human cargo in the form of Tainos, which were the natives that lived on that island. When he went back, the Vatican, which is, by the way, this the, the Doctrine of Discovery is, is a... Uh, papal bull. It was created by the Vatican. And it still lives in the Vatican. So when he went back, they revised it. And when they revised it, all of these, um, you remember, it was originally for the Portuguese, then it was for the Portuguese and the Spaniards. Then it became something that spread because all of the monarchies were related. So it spread like wildfire. So now you got all these European countries going in and colonizing all of these countries along the equatorial band. And there's a reason that they were colonizing specifically countries along the equatorial band. The doctrine of discovery still affects nations today to the point that the last the doctrine of discovery was used in this country was 2005 when Justice Ginsburg used it to win a case against the Oneidas of New York, the, the Oneida nation of New York. It's It was used in 2015. We've cited, I just did a program uh, for a group of lawyers, and we cited 5,000 cases in which the doctrine of discovery was used. It was used in the 1830s for land grab. Um, And the doctrine of discovery not only affects the land, the doctrine of discovery affects the land, the waterways, and the people who were supposed to be perpetually enslaved. And so, you know, without an understanding of why and how whites have internalized racism. It, you know, one of the things that I t- tell people is if whites could just stop looking at, at the word racism as a character, um, as, a, as a character description, if they could just look at it as conditioning. In other words, people have been conditioned for hundreds of years to separate and segregate individual groups of humans when in reality, there is no epigenetics that separates us. We're one human family and we're all related, <laughs> you know? Um, and so if without an understanding of these deeper issues and, and the, the context of this stuff, we can't heal from it and we can't solve it. So but I still, I, th- I think one of the biggest things that, that I'm, I'm big on on trying to get tangible, like, so real things that we can, that you can dig in and and the average person could do, because, you know, when you go back to the 1400s or the 1500s, yeah, you know, they went everywhere and they enslaved everybody and they did it because they wanted to take money from anybody at any point in time. This was a, this was the age of, uh, exploration and they were going to take and conquer and steal and bring as much back. Were they, were they more interested in the racist part or were they more interested in getting wealthy beyond human belief? Uh, probably if I would bet, it's probably more. Yeah. It was the wealth. Because think about this, David, prior to colonization, the Africans and the Europeans had a longstanding history of trade and diplomacy. And they were actually black royal houses in Europe. Right. And so, so no, it was all about let's, let's go and get it. And I do this whole presentation in my two day that helps people really ground it and really get it because yeah. 
Um, without that background, you know, understanding that people in colder climates develop differently from people in warmer climates because simply because of their surroundings, you know, that there are things that are going to be really important to people in cold climates that are just not important or valuable in right. warm climate. And so once people start to understand all of that, like there's, there are all these little pieces right. that when people get those pieces, they're like, oh, now I get it. So rather than feeling like someone, and there are people who use the word racism to insult others. Okay. Right. So we're not going to be naive about that. Right, but right, the reality right. is, if if white people could hear that word as, oh, my conditioning is showing. Conditioning is not somebody's fault. Conditioning is something that happens naturally through the stuff that happens in the systems that people live under and they absorb. Okay, so once you start to understand that, then racism isn't, it doesn't have the same charge because right. it isn't something that you use to insult someone. Like I said, some people do use it that way. Okay. Right. Right. But it's the word that we currently have that actually describes how, how this stuff was institutionalized and therefore absorbed by people living right. under those systems. Right. So there's, there's a um, John Bradshaw, uh, who was a therapist, wrote a wonderful book called Family Secrets. And in Family Secrets, what he explains is that, yes, there's some, there's some things in families that people purposely keep secret, okay? Mm -hmm. And then there are things in family that people just don't talk about. And as a human family, we have both. Right. But what he said was people still act out of the secret even when they don't know what the secret is. Right. So that's what we're dealing with when it comes to race and racism. A lot of decontextualized trauma, a lot of decontextualized um, historical stuff that we never talk about or we never learn that, you know, has been left out of history books, sometimes purposely, sometimes ignorantly. Uh, but we still, as a human body, as a human family, are acting out of the human family secret. Yeah. Doctrine of discovery is one of those human human. Um, family secrets that's just starting to really come out now. And, you know, they're native tribes that are trying to get the Vatican to rescind it, but, but it's still alive today. And it isn't just something from the 1400s. It is still affecting us today because it's international law. Yeah. But I think the big, I think the big concern um, from the white population is probably, you know, when you talk to 14, most people, I can't, for example, even convince my wife to do something. And so when a white today is told you need to change the yes. system that exists, I mean, uh, studies show now most people don't believe they can impact the government in any way, shape or form, no matter what color they are. They feel like they're completely alienated most of the time. There's, there, It's hard to find people anymore today, especially in my college demographic, that believe that anything these politicians ever say, that they're going to change something one way or the other. They. They don't. So when they hear, you know, this started in the 1400s by whites, you're white, you need to change it. It gets overwhelming. I love what you talk about, though, when you say to get to the deeper personal level, because the one thing we all can control yeah. is ourself. Absolutely. And I think that's where that messaging sometimes gets aggressive towards whites that you need to change this. And it's like, my goodness, I can barely control my own life, let alone yeah. try and fix 
a company not hiring people of color or let alone the United States government doing something that is not, you know, not racially sensitive. Goodness gracious, most people are trying to pay a bill in a month, a month. And and Mm -hmm. I think your piece of it that is so vital is that because if it's it's almost like the Confucius model of it all starts in your own home. Mm-hmm. It all starts with your own house. Because if you can fix your own house, then you can fix your community, your family. You fix your family, you fix community, you can fix community, you can fix state and state, you know, and so on and so forth. I think Absolutely. that's the important piece. But I think what gets lost a lot of times by people, because you say whites are responsible for it, but if they feel like they're attacked, that they're guilty no matter what, it's it's kind of like you're going to be my friend, even though you're an idiot. Well, that person's not going to be my friend if I'm calling them or I'm accusing them or I'm blaming them. Because at the household level, at the one person on the street thing, he may ne- literally never even go through. Like you said, he's not even realizing any of that whatsoever. And it, mm-hmm. it's not even it's not even resonating in their mind. Mm-hmm. And, and when they get offended by it, what are they going to do? We see it in the news. We see it in social media. They shut down or they fire back really loud. Yeah, because, because yeah, the, the tendency. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, when you speak to when you speak about racism to uh, most whites, what you're doing is you're triggering their stress response. Yeah, this is why healing is so important. So you're triggering somebody's stress response and it's fight, flight or paralysis. Right. And so so that's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, you know, so you trigger someone's stress response. Um, the the thing to remember. So, so, so there's a lot because this stuff is like, let's unpack a little bit of, of that. Yeah. So people of color. So let me back up. So when I'm talking about racism is a problem for mm-hmm. people of color, not the problem of. Right. right. In order for people of color to live in a racialized world, they have to live with consistent triggers. Remember what I said, fight, flight, or paralysis? Mm -hmm. Black people have to live with that, and brown people, and indigenous people, 24-7-365. So one of the things that happens is that, uh, and somebody wrote a book called White Fragility, because, because this group of people has to live with this, this insistent amount of stress, which causes stress-related illnesses, therefore, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, all of those, those are stress-related illnesses, okay? And so, so they're living in a world that causes them constant and continual stress and trauma. And, and so, so we have that group of people. And then we have a group of people that gets triggered when they get called a name. Okay. And, and interestingly enough, both people are suffering because the fact that you get triggered about something means that something's off. What is it? Um, Resma Menekin. Who, who is the author of My Grandmother's Hands, puts it really well. He says, if it's hysterical, it's historical. If you're overreacting about something, some person, some place, something, then you have a trigger that just, you know, by the mere mention gets triggered. 
So you have people that by the mere mention of a word get triggered. And we have people who are triggered 24-7, 365 by living, by being in somebody's belly before you're even born, by even at your burial, there are cemeteries still in this country that are segregated. Do you know what I mean? Right. So what are we talking about here? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, we're talking about about um, triggers versus constant and continual stress. Now, how do we get people to show up? And I, and I, I, I got to tell you that about 80% of my audience are white people. Oh, that's and they great. keep coming back. That's and great. the reason they keep coming back is because one of the things that I remind people is this is not your fault. If you just get that this is not your fault, but it is still our collective responsibility as a human body to heal it because everybody absorbed that caste system in a different form based on where they fall in the caste system. So some people absorb that caste system as supremacy. And when they say supremacy, I'm talking about the basic meaning of the word, which is, which is to be superior over, to be superior from, to um, have uh, more rights than others. And that's what I'm talking about. We're not talking about the people who go and destroy and burn crosses. That's one form of it. But the regular, everyday, average, nice person form of it is the expectation that you're going to be treated differently because. And so much so that you don't ever even think about it. You just expect it, you know. Right. And, and then we have people who absorbed it as colonization. Colonization is the taking over of and expecting to be served by those who you took over. Some people internalize it as, as colonization and enslavement. But we all internalized the system. We just internalized it differently. So when people are talking about, um, about white racism, right? What they're really talking about, and this is the piece that no one explains to us, and it just drives me nuts. What they're really talking about here is how you absorbed that caste system, where I would have absorbed it as um, Stockholm syndrome, as a person of color. That's when you go, that's when you're kidnapped, okay? And you start to take on the characteristics of your kidnapper, okay? So um, also uh, people of color absorbed it as, as constantly striving for, constantly striving for. So, so per capita, you have more, um, particularly black people who are PhDs than you have whites. Because you just can't get enough information to make yourself be believable, to make yourself be the one that um, should be getting the job or should be, you know what I mean? Like it's just, there's just, it's not enough of that. Because one of the ways that the system impacts particularly people of color. So it, it, it uh, um, impacts whites in a very similar way, but it's really visible in people of color. One of the impacts is that you're not enough. You're not light enough, dark enough, black enough, white enough. You're, you're not enough. You're just not enough. Right. And it doesn't matter what you do. You can never be enough because you'll never be white. Right. 
No, that's that's definitely, especially, you know, my son's biracial because my wife's from Venezuela. So she's Latina. And, you know, it's it's like you fall in in the in the cracks of different things and both sides have different expectations of how you that, that there's definitely definitely truth in that. And, you know, I think it's hard for white people to understand. And, and you know, having a wife who's Latina, she's born and raised in Venezuela. Uh, she would never be mistaken for a white in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll never forget this. This happened when we were first married, and it really struck me. You know, there was a grocery store back in the day where you used to have to write checks, you know, actually physically handwrite checks. Yes. I'd go in the grocery store, write a check, and they'd never check my ID ever. Never. Every time she went in there, they would pull out ID. they double, triple check her. You know, just subtle, subtle little things like that. And I think sometimes we as white people, we can, we don't experience that piece like you had said, whereas in, if you're an African-American, you have stuff happen that whites just don't necessarily appreciate. And so we don't, so we don't, we don't value it as important. It's more like, well, suck it up and get over it. It's now 2021. Let's go forward. And I think if we can find common ground somewhere that, hey, there are things that happen and some are some are just minor. But, you know, how annoying is that? I got more mad than she did, actually, when I she first told me. I'm like, what do you mean they're checking your ID? And now I go in there all the you know, it's like. We all, if we can get an appreciation of those things, I think is just absolutely vital. But those triggers are strong. If I say the word mask mandate, that will literally trigger everybody. If I say build a wall on the southern border, it's going to trigger pretty much everybody. (laughs) And it's just we live in this social media instantaneous. Everybody's opinion is out there on the spot, wild and, you know, not having a conversation like you and I can sit and talk and I can see we don't agree on everything, but we can still agree on some baseline stuff and we can we can come together, hopefully, to move the whole big picture, at least talk about it so people can open mindedly see how to have a discussion on these topics. And, you know, I think, again, that that biggest thing, so the system, the the caste system as you describe it. So if it exists like it does today and it's been in basically in place, let's let's just give it the 1400s. But, you know, you go back to Rome and the Greeks and, I mean, you can find all kinds of different people that were discriminated at different times. We're very good at doing that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but (laughs) but let's just stay like in this current system. It. What would it take, do you think, to literally end this systemic caste system? I mean, and as a humanities professor as I am, and I look at the whole of human history, I don't want to be pessimistic, but it seems almost an impossibility to get rid of racism because I'm not sure I could ever find a society that you could say, ooh, there it is. They didn't have any racists anywhere. And if it wasn't skin color, it's obviously economic status. It's social. I mean, you can you can yeah, it's all the that. isms, all <laughs> the isms. Yeah. yeah. So so one of the ways that um, and I'm going to call it segregation, you know, segregating the human race into right. different, you know, um, one of the, the easiest ways to do that is um, you take away people's history. 
You take away their language. You tell them that what they believe in terms of their spirituality is wrong and bad. And then you drill them continuously on that. Then you use violence to traumatize them. <laughs> and traumatize people traumatize other. And we now know through epigenetics that trauma gets passed on from generation to generation. Yeah. And all you have to do is send a couple of people from their family to war and have them come back. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's, here's the thing. What we have been doing continually since before the times of the Romans is traumatizing people through violence. Right. And the reason that we do that is because traumatized people are destabilized and destabilized people are easy to control. And so you want to make sure that they don't know their history, that they're doubtful about their own belief system. So they're no longer listening to their core and they're no longer listening to their own intuition. They're listening to outside sources that give them the information they think those people should have in order that those people may be controlled. So how do we heal it? By not doing that. What is it that Einstein said? You know, you can't solve your problems with the same consciousness that created it. That's the consciousness that created racism. That's the consciousness that creates economic violence. That's the consciousness that creates wars. That's that same, con we cannot solve it with that consciousness. So then we have to reach out to, what is a different consciousness from that? How about love? How about compassion? How about understanding? How about telling people the truth instead of hiding their history from them? Because decontextualized trauma, people still act out of the trauma. They don't know what it is. Knowing what the trauma is helps. Everyone that, pretty much everyone that's come to this country since I would say before the 1950s came because they were being traumatized where they were. And right. I don't care if you were a pilgrim, I don't care who you were. Yeah. You came to this part of the world because where you were was horrific. Oh, the Irish horrific. in New York were completely brutalized for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And what did they do? They came and they brutalized black people because traumatized people traumatize others. So what we need to do is we need to become conscious of the ways that people are traumatizing each other. We need to educate people to something different. We need to inform them that every time they traumatize someone else, because see, it's very easy to see how people of color are traumatized by a very violent system, okay? Whites don't see their own trauma because it's hidden behind privilege. And so one of the things that happens with whites is that they remain silent and invisible when it comes to racism because their, pri their privilege hides how they are actually oppressed by the same system. And one of the ways that people are oppressed, white people are oppressed, is because laws were set up a long time ago that told you who you would marry, who would be educated, who would actually have health care. This stuff is written, was written by the Spaniards a long time ago. And that system that we're that we're underdetermined who will get educated, you know, like women weren't allowed to read and write. You could be burned if you got caught with a book at one point. Right. And so, you know, so we need to understand that this is collective human history. There is no such thing as black history and European history. All of our history are inextricably linked. This is our human family history. And when we start to break that down, we start to understand who got traumatized when, by whom, you begin to understand and you understand that 
traumatized people traumatize others and that trauma gets passed on and you understand that you cannot traumatize another human being without you yourself being compromised and compromising your progeny then maybe people will stop traumatizing other people but they need to be educated about that right so we need an educational system that's more comprehensive what what would you say to the white college student i have who first generation you know there's over 10 million whites who are in poverty right now mm-hmm. and they yeah. would probably say if i could get me some of that white privilege would you please hand me some of that white privilege yeah because they don't I understand white privilege that's why that's that's worse than many so how do you you know, when 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 you hear and I think this gives some people pause too. when they hear the blanket of white privilege, there are definitely people privileged there. I mean, to pretend otherwise would be silly. Right. I mean, that's that's an obvious that's an obvious statement there. But what do you say about the white who is is way at the bottom? And there's a bunch. I've, I've been a foster parent for years and oh, my God, I've had white, black, Hispanic. But I don't see much of a difference in 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 any of them down at that level. So so again, you know, the language that we use to is is so important to get whites to understand and appreciate so much of your perspective, because when they hear the word white privilege, many people would say, huh, you don't know my life. I had no privilege you want to know what privilege I've had? Let me sit down and I'll tell you in an hour. And yeah, a half. absolutely. Because they don't because. White privilege means absolutely the the word privilege. If you're just going to use the word privilege, that's a completely different thing from white privilege. Mm-hmm. Let me explain the difference. Okay, regular privilege is something that people look at from the perspective of socioeconomics. Okay, white privilege is not just socioeconomics, right? Because it can include that. But really, what white privilege is is the things that can happen to you and for you simply because you have white skin there you that's such an important distinction so that's a, the difference critical for everyone listening to understand that yeah so because for instance they, yeah because when yeah. they hear that white privilege immediately even if they're at the bottom they go to finances that's they're where like, they go. oh really you're telling me i have yeah. white privilege and they're they're associating their economics yeah. with that situation and again words are so powerful absolutely and they have so much meaning and it's important that that people who are listening to this understand that distinction because yeah so so let's say both you and your wife were completely poor okay you were just surviving and and that that checkbook that you have is a joint checkbook or, or it's two different it has two different names on it right mm-hmm. there's her name on her checkbook there's your name on the on the checks right and you just gave a perfect example. You both go shopping to the same store. All they should care about is, is their money in that account. Right, right. But they care about so much more with her than they do with you. The assumption is that she doesn't have, that the money's not going to be there, that she has bounced checks before, that there's something wrong with her because she's not enough. You, however, as a white male can show up and just your presence means you're enough. They just assume that you're going to have money. Okay, so now let me explain to you about someone, um, a white person who's very, very poor, okay, going out to 
let's say, let's say you, you, you're both going to go to the bank to get a loan or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So black person goes in, nice suit, well-dressed, dress, you know, their nice professional appearance. And they show up to the bank and they get, um, they get drilled, okay? Uh, about how they're going to pay for this loan, what they have, blah, 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 blah. Like the usual stuff and then some, okay? Now, white person who is also poor goes to the, um, the local Goodwill and they buy a suit for 25 cents and a pair of shoes for, for 20 cents. And they groom themselves and they show up to the bank also for a loan. Financially, they're both the thing got nothing, okay, to cover this loan with. But the chances are pretty good that that white person's gonna get that loan. That black person's gonna walk out of there without a loan. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I mean, I could tell you stories about when I was buying my first house. I mean, it was. It, it was unbelievable. And I had one friend who, who finally, I had finally been turned down by the third bank. Yeah. And a friend of mine had called and, and uh, he was my professor at the time. We were very good friends. And, and he said, um, so how's it going with the house? I said, well, I'm not going to get it. I just got turned down by the third loan. He goes, you're kidding me. I said, no. He, he goes, do you want me to call them for you? I said, what can you do? You know, cause back then I'm totally naive. I don't know what I'm really dealing with. Right. And he goes, oh, you don't know this about me. I used to be the vice president of Chase Manhattan. I'll call them for you. Within two hours, they faxed me the information and I didn't have to wait six weeks for my loan. I got it in two weeks. Hmm. Because someone with privilege spoke up for me. So this is, so that's the difference, right? The difference is in the ways that you get treated and the assumptions that are made. Like when, when that poor person went in there with a nice suit, maybe even the same suit, they were seen as somebody who can, who can rise above, right? Or who will have the money. And even if they don't have it now, they can probably get a job because they're more likely, they're less likely to get denied to get the job to pay back the loan than a black person. I mean, the saying is to be less hired, first fired. So there's a knowledge by that bank system that a white person is going to have more financial security if they if they, once they start to rise through the ranks right and that they can because all they have to do is change their appearance and show up and what the the research is telling us is that a white male with a high school diploma and a record and a a federal offense record has a better chance of getting a job than a black male with a college degree and no record. That's the difference between white privilege and not having white privilege. And if you look at all of the people that have come to this country, for the most part, when they first arrived here, they were not considered white. The Irish were not considered white. The uh, Jews were not considered white. You know, people had to do certain things to fit in. Some Jews changed their names. Some, um, um, the Irish people had to lose their accent. And so by the second generation, 
they could be considered white if they did certain things to fit in. The Italians, you'll find that in a lot of Italian families, the second and third generation don't speak Italian anymore because they gave up the language in order to be white. Because whiteness is something that can give you privileges that if you're not white, you cannot get. So even people with white skin that arrived to this country, when they first started arriving to this country in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were not considered white. There were something like 48 different classifications of race that did not apply to black or brown people. That was white Europeans, Eastern Europeans, and so on and so forth. So, you know, so again, it's this knowing of this history and understanding and being able to unpack it that helps us to get a greater grip. So when we're talking white privilege, what we're talking about is the difference between you going into that little store with your checking account and not get asked questions or, or you know, have, have to show your ID versus your wife who does. That's the difference. So it's yeah, a yeah. white skin thing and, and what you can get because of that skin color. Yeah. I, uh, you know, on the banking issue, I, th I think so much of bank, I mean, we don't, I don't want to go down a banking thing, but I mean, the whole world revolves around your credit score anymore. So, I mean, if you don't have a credit score, you ain't getting a loan, period. I, I don't know how much that color is skin anymore, but maybe back in the, I think there probably was a period where they actually sat people. I don't know if I ever remember going in a bank. I always remember filling them online by the time I could buy a house, but but, oh, I, I went in in person. Yeah, you did. And yeah. I got denied. Yeah, you, you had to yep. walk. I, I walked it. Because <laughs> yeah. some people haven't, they, you know, some people don't have to walk it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's the other difference, too. No, I, I walked it. And so yeah. so that's why I can tell you these things. And yeah. I also have a lot of friends who walked it. Yeah. And so it isn't a one-off. It isn't just yeah. like, well, that happened to me. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah. 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 Having having been a foster parent and dealing with a lot of these very low socioeconomic white people, uh, I'm not so sure most of them, again, with criminal records, many of them with serious drug problems. That's why we would have their kids in our house in the first place. It didn't matter how white they were. They weren't getting a job because they they had <laughs> they had a lot of other issues many times that were preventing them from, you know, uh, race might have helped them a little, but not enough to get out of where they were almost all the time. Every once in a while you hear that we'd have these wonderful success stories, but you know, they were, they were more few and far between, but. So well, that's why Dr. King was trying to start the poor people's campaign because his whole thing was, was that it doesn't matter if you're poor. Yeah. If you're poor, you're poor, whether you're poor and you're black, you're poor or Latino, you're poor or white. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. You're all poor. The, but here's the thing. When Dr. King tried to start that campaign, he couldn't get that campaign. He couldn't get white people to join the, the, that campaign because they were white. Right. And that was, despite their poverty, that was their claim to fame. It's like, well, at least we're not black like those people over there or brown like those people over there. You see what I, so that's yeah. the privilege piece. Right. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, I guess as we, as we get close to ending here, I want to give you a chance. Well, I have, I have two final questions. I mean, do you see a solution that actually can get fixed 
above just the person, like how you deal with your your two day seminar. You bring people in, you educate them. They become more fluent in the conversation. They understand the history. They're willing to listen to both sides. They're willing to to participate, whether they're black, brown, white, Hispanic. I mean, I don't mean to not have faith in our government at all, but governments have always oppressed everybody all the time. There has never been one that doesn't oppress. If they can keep power by race, they'll keep it by race. If they can keep it by socioeconomic, they'll keep it by, if they need war, they'll use war. They'll, they'll use Absolutely. whatever tool they need. I mean, are we almost having a conversation as far as holistically worldwide is almost just we're having a nice theoretical talk and and the real battle is just you and me and everybody else getting <laughs> better and as we each get a little better we each make the lives of the community better i mean what where do you where do you think this all this how, do, is, how do we get that healing you talk about yeah so healing is an individual journey because healing is an individual choice you cannot force people to heal Right. If, if someone has um, a, a drug problem, you can't, you know, you can send them to rehab, but until they are ready, they, they won't, they won't start that healing process. They'll keep going. Oh, and yep. so, so we can't force people, but we can continue to do the work within ourselves, within our families and within our communities to make a real difference. And I'm going to tell you just a quick story about how the, the, the here's one of the, the hopes is that as people gain their strength and their wholeness, they'll stop turning their power over to other people because that is part of the problem. Right. Okay, but um, but I want to tell you this quick story because I've worked on a project called Congressional Conversations on Race, and it was a three year uh program that with a grant that was made by the Kellogg Foundation to work with eight members of Congress, and they would then invite other members to join them. Um, as we did programs. And we were, we had just finished doing a program and this particular um, congressman from uh, Alabama, who's a Republican from Alabama, stood up and he said, you know, I had no idea how some of the laws that we had made were hurting African-American families. And I want to do something to change that. And I want you, you, and you, and he pointed to several members who were there from his side of the aisle and the other side of the aisle to join him because he was going to form a committee right there. And then he made that decision to wow. form that committee. And this was in 20, was it in the 2012 of 2013? And, and two years later, um, I was meeting the new CEO of the, one of the organizations that had brought me on to work with the members. And, um, and she was new and I was telling her about my work and she said, um, why have you done this work for so long? So it seems to me like you've been doing this work before it was like popular, right? And I said, yeah, I have. And she said, um, why do you keep doing it? I said, because I get to see people transform right before my very eyes. And then I told her that story about that Republican. She goes, oh my God, I was chief of staff for so-and-so and he was on that committee and they're looking to turn some of that stuff into law. We never know whose heart we're going to impact. See, everybody's trying right. to solve racism from their heads. Who's white? Who's black? Who's got privilege? Who doesn't? Like everybody's trying to solve it up here. If we could solve it in our heads, we would have a long time ago. We have a lot of research material. We have a lot of numbers. We have a lot of that stuff. But until people can allow all of that information that's in their heads to take that 12 inch drop into their hearts, nothing changes. Right. That day, that man's heart was touched. 
And when people's hearts are touched, you don't have to make them. You don't have to force them. They do the right thing because human beings are wired for love. Right. We are wired for love. And so when people understand that we are all in this together, that we are one human family living on one global village that we know as the earth, we start to look at life differently. And we realize, wow, you know, my cousins over there, they don't have any shoes. What can we do about that? Oh, you know, the, the cousins over there, they don't have any books. What can we do about that? You know, and when we start looking at each other as one human family that has been suffering from not receiving the gifts that all human beings bring to this earth, because everybody's born with gifts that they can offer the world. And when we block them from doing that, we impoverish ourselves and the world we live in. If we open our hearts and we start to open our doors to our organizations and to our political systems and to all of these places where we can make change and impact change and we bring love and make that the foundation of everything we do as we look at each other as one human family, I really believe that we can leave less and less and less to each coming generation. And if we do that, there will be a day when people will read about us in the history book as, what was racism? Mm -hmm. What is that? Rather than where we are now, if we do nothing, it's never going to change. Right. That's almost a drop the mic moment right there, uh, Milagros. That, that was a beautiful way. And I think, you know, each of us all the time, like I, like I tell my students in class, you got to think and you have to have humility to listen to other people and you have to have an open mind and just to hear it. You don't always have to agree with everything, but goodness, if you'll just talk with somebody, you can gain perspective. And if you gain perspective, you can gain new bits of knowledge. And as you gain new bits of knowledge, maybe down the road, it'll create some cognitive dissonance and you're like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I can change this way or that way, or I can do this. Instead of this antagonism of, oh, you want to talk about that? I'm not even going to listen. The worst thing that's happening in society on this topic, nobody will even listen to the other side. Yeah. They will name call and I'm not even going to hear it. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen. And that is, you know, to to a to a free democracy, that is suicide. Yeah. That is suicide when we won't listen to each other. Yeah. We literally will consume ourselves from within if we're not careful with that. So once again, Malagra, it's been a pleasure. I mean, I know we don't agree on everything, but we agree on a lot of stuff. And, and I think it's, I think it's, I so thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come on my show today. So thank oh, you. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm glad that we can at least meet common ground. Absolutely. And Milagros, <laughs> if somebody wants to connect with you or maybe buy a book or what, where, where should they go? Do you have a website or yeah. how should they get in touch with you? Yeah. So my website is uh, www.milagrosphillips.com. So it's just my name with .com. And uh, there's a, a whole thing in there with testimonials and, and my books are all listed there as well. So people can click on that and they can also find my first three books are already on Amazon and Probably by the time this podcast comes out, the fourth book will be out there as well. Excellent. And, and everybody listening to in the in the I'll put her link down below. So if you just want to click it and go check out what Milagros is up to right now, you, you can feel free to do that. So once again, thank you, Milagros. And thank you, David. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I 
so hope you found value in the topic today. You know, every single day, if we can expand our perspective just a little bit on any range of topic, whether it be about our physical body, intellectual sharpness and perspective, or spiritual growth, then if we stay consistent in the long run, we all become more well-rounded people able to cope with all manner of events in life. I always appreciate you clicking like or follow to this podcast. Generally, a new episode is published every single week. And please, if you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear about them. With that, I hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week until we talk again.